1: Man, I want to start with a little bit of gratitude. Can I just say thank you? Thank you to each and every one of you who listen. Some of you I know are brand new, but a lot of you, you've been around for a while. We're 205 episodes in, and the day before I recorded this, we hit a really cool milestone. And some of you know this if you follow me on social. If you don't, and this is where we interact, can I just say thank you? We just rolled past 6 million downloads on this podcast crazy man and I just first of all want to say thank you thank you to every single one of you who listens every week who shares who tells your friends about it who posts this on social who subscribes who leaves ratings and reviews we've got now I think over a thousand reviews on different iTunes stores around the world over well over 700 on the U.S. iTunes store and man you guys honestly you're the hero in the story and here's why I do this because I just hope that this really helps you every single week. And to go back to the original vision of the podcast, just well, almost four years ago when we started, it was August of 2018 that we launched the uh, pre episodes, and then September we rolled it out. I was having the privilege of having great conversations with church leaders around the world, and I would leave those conversations saying gosh, I wish everyone could have heard that. Wow, I wish, you know, my elders could have heard this or our church could have heard this or my friends could have heard this. And so I came up with this idea of just, why don't we have these conversations in public? Believe it or not, there wasn't four years ago, a lot of long form podcasting. Now it's a lot more popular. So kind of just went with my gut and here we are, man, what a journey. And I just want to say that too, to encouragement for those of you who've got an idea I mean, I literally do this podcast out of my house. I mean, I am standing in my basement right now. Uh, got a nice studio set up and everything. But, you know, it was a renovated bedroom, bought a microphone, my iMac at the time. And, you know, boom, launched this podcast and here we are. So if you have a dream, I am behind it. And I just want to encourage you to have the the courage to go for it. Uh, speaking of courage to go for it, man, you're going to love today's guest. We have Elliot Crowther here. And just a few years ago, when he was 24, he was in what a lot of people would call a dead-end job, not exactly his career choice, decided to make the best of it. And he had an idea. And within a few months, he and his co-founder, Chris Heeslip founded a little company that went on to become Pushpay, which fast forward seven years, and all of a sudden, they are a company that has $100 million annual sales, which is just... Like, isn't that crazy? And they process over $3 billion a year in giving. I mean, that's, that's insane. And all that, and he's like 31 years old. It's crazy. Actually, I'm going to be with some of the people at PushPay next month in Charlotte, along with Stephen Furtick. I'm going to actually do a live podcast interview with Scott Harrison founder of Charity Water. You can get all the details to that in the show notes, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 205. So if you're in the Charlotte area, you want to come in for the push Pace Summit, make sure you do that. But you're going to love this story with Elliot. It's just so real, so vulnerable, and so amazing. So fasten your seatbelts for that. Also, speaking of places I will be, do you know it's almost time to register for the Orange Tour again this fall? My plan, I'm actually going to be doing a little less speaking in the season. There's a lot of reasons behind that, Um, but I am happy to say I'm going to be in a number of cities this fall, but it's a, a limited run. I'll be in Irvine, California, just outside of LA. I'll be in Lancaster, Detroit, Chicago, Orlando, and then once again, Charlotte. So super excited for that. Uh, that's the Orange Tour. You can go to orangetour.org and register now. And I hope to meet you in the city. I will be talking a little bit about my brand new book, Didn't See It Coming, which you'll hear a lot about next month on this podcast. Also, um, hey, what are you doing? Like fall's almost here for you guys. Are you going back to the same old way of training your volunteers? Of course you're not because you're progressive and you're thoughtful and you realize it's 2018, right? Yeah. That's right. So you probably by this point gone and checked out trainedup.church. And if not, that's exactly what you should do. Because training doesn't have to happen the old fashioned way where you try to get everybody in, you know, a seminar room on a Saturday that turned out to be sunny. And then people are like, well, I'm not going to that. And you got less than half your people trained or 60% of your people trained. eh, Not good enough anymore. Make it a lot easier. Do all your training online, like literally on your phone. And you can train your entire church, all your volunteers, all your key ministry leaders, and you can do that in a way that's completely customizable. They have rolled out a ton of new features this summer in Trained Up. So go to trainedup.church. You'll find things like password-free logins, uh, ministry areas, so it's clear for your volunteers where they need to click, and get up to 100% of your volunteers trained. Yeah, Uh, That's not just a safety thing. That's a vision thing. That is an alignment thing, and that is a mission thing. And if you use the coupon code CARRY, you'll get 10% off of your service for life. So go to trainedup.church today, and on checkout, use the coupon code CARRY, C-A-R-E-Y. You'll get 10% off of your service forever. How cool is that? And without much further ado, why don't we dive into episode 205 and my conversation with PushPay co-founder, Elliot Crowther.
2: Elliot, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here, Kerry.
2: Yeah, it's great to uh, finally connect. And uh, you and I are going to be together in August uh, at one of the Elevation sites for a one-day summit,
3: right? Yeah, it's going to be amazing. Uh, Summit for us is an opportunity to bring people from outside of the church and leaders from inside of the church together to, to talk about how to do church maybe a little better. And so we focus on kind of a few areas like leadership communications and tech, and it's just a good day. Uh, and I'm excited. I'm really excited to have you there. It's going to be awesome.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to be fun. You have Erwin uh, McManus, Nona Jones, who's from Facebook, uh, Scott Harrison, Stephen Furtick, your co-founder, your partner. Chris, uh, Chris Eastlip. And then yeah. uh, I get to be there too, which is uh, going to be <laughs> a lot of fun. So,
3: yeah, it's going to be awesome. That's
2: going to be, be great. great. So, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. But I want to dive into the interview here with you, Elliot. Um, now, you and Chris co founded how many years ago now? Push Pay? Was that seven years ago?
3: Yeah, seven years ago, 2011. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Wow. First of all, what is Push Pay? Um, sure. Because it's not only a company, it's representative of the digital disruption that we're all yeah. living through right now. And so tell everybody what it is and then talk about how you and Chris came up with that.
3: idea. Yeah, cool. I mean, so, I mean, push by itself, we're, uh, a, um, an organization that helps, uh, predominantly churches, although there's some organizations outside of churches, you know, um, that are affiliated with the churches we work with, but predominantly churches with giving, uh, and digital engagement. And I mean, digital engagement just sounds like a pretty cool buzzword, but, Uh, We we see that there's a lot of impact that can be had through mobile, and we see that that's uh, accelerating outside of the church. So why wouldn't we bring that level of technology to the church? So we have um, most of our our people are in Seattle. About 300 of our staff are there. uh, And then we do have about 100 of our team down in New Zealand, uh, which is where my accent is from. So I apologize. You mean that's not
2: a Seattle accent? (laughs) <laughs> i was totally confused it. i'm kidding i spent a lot of time in new zealand it's great yeah
3: it's
2: awesome. so are you both kiwis
3: you yeah chris? we're both kiwis we're both trying to lose that accent um no look we he's uh, chris is an amazing guy and he's the ceo of the company and and like you say we started it about seven years ago and i mean the story for how we kind of got going is is kind of fascinating i mean he, he's got his own story but from from my perspective i as a as a young guy was um really actually into cycling of all things. So I, I was a bike oh, yeah. rider. Yeah, no kidding. And I like semi
2: Pro, right? Didn't you didn't well, you compete?
3: Yeah, I did. I did. I, I I sort of um was very passionate about that through and and kinda of had a big goal. I thought hey it would be amazing to ride the Tour de France and all that. I never made it. I was good, but not good enough. Um so I kinda w of, I got to the world championships and got to represent my country for, um, many, many times, but just didn't quite have the the goods to make it. And I think maybe I could be world-class maybe once or twice a year, but the, the really brilliant guys could be world-class, you know, 15 or 20 times a year.
2: Because I know cycling isn't huge in America. It's, you know, it's catching on, but 80% of the audience to this podcast is American. It's not that it's all that big in Canada either. Uh, but, you know, people look at the Tour de France and go, oh, yeah, they biked all day. But have you seen the uh, have you seen it's, it's another fellow Kiwi, Phil, what's his name? He was host of the Amazing Race, Kiki or whatever oh. his name is. Yeah, he did this movie. I went to see it with some friends where they reenacted the 1928 Tour de France <laughs> and they used 1928 equipment. And I mean, it's got to be one of the hardest races on Earth. Like people just don't get it. Like give give listeners an idea of What cycling really involves to compete at a world-class level?
3: Yeah, um, well, I I I didn't like I say quite make it to that level I was I mean, even for me, I was trying to national
2: level. I I mean, you're you're you're, yeah I mean, mean, you're you're an elite cyclist
3: Right. I mean at the time I was training four five six seven and and this sounds crazy, but even up to eight hour rides um, you just you just eat sleep and train and that's all you do. It, the whole thing is about being how uh, strong can you be, how skinny can you be at the same time, which is a little bit not, not healthy for your body. Um, but the, the, the concept is you've got to be as as power to weight ratio, is has got to be as high as possible. So you, you just, you give everything you've got. And, and um, I think to be a, a good bike rider or a good athlete in any sort of right, you've got to be just so focused. And I, you know, for me, I was training or you know it didn't matter what the weather it could be you know hail and wind and and you'd be out there for you know your 140 mile bike ride if you had to and uh, yeah. and then amateur then you've got to go to work afterwards to pay the bills so that was uh, the other half of life too um, because i didn't make it as a pro so I, as an amateur i was you know you're trying to break through so i went to europe as a young man and you know you sleep in a communal type house and you go race and you try not to crash and you do crash and and then you get back on your bike, and and uh, and then you, at some point you come to the realization, I'm not good enough, and uh, you go home. So,
2: <laughs> so to give non cyclists an idea, what is a typical speed? Uh, and I know it varies. If you're if yeah. you're cycling in the Alps, it's going to be well, different. But I mean, you know, an average speed for a yeah. rider.
3: Well, I mean, it, you talk about the Tour de France. I mean, the Tour de France. Those guys are averaging for. The tour is just under 4,000 kilometers, uh, and I think 37, 38. I mean, it varies a little bit every year, but they're averaging for that 21-day uh, stage race, they're averaging just about 40 or over 40 kilometers an hour. Sometimes 40, 40 and a half, 41. That's just incredible because they're yeah. they're doing alpine passes, and not like one, but some stages will have two or three alpine passes. And uh, yeah, they're just amazing, amazing. Athletes. So 25
2: to 30 miles an hour. I did. So you're saying they're they're averaging in the 40s. Yeah. I did a 50k ride last night, so that's a 30 mile ride. I was real happy that I hit 25 kilometers an hour. You know, I was real happy with that. So
3: <laughs> well, I would I would probably be happy with that these days too. No, oh. I, I do I do miss that. Um, but I I think it was funny because for me through that sort of period of time, I learned a lot about um, discipline. I think you you probably being out on your bike, you know, at six o'clock in the morning, knowing you've just got six hours to go, is <laughs> a bizarre feeling. But it, it, um, I think I learned a lot through that. And then when I hung my wheels up, I, I needed to earn some money. I was like 21 years of age at that time, and I, uh, I started the job I got was in sales. I had been to university and all this stuff, but I, I needed to earn so. Uh, I started uh, the sales job. I had never done sales before. I didn't know what sales was. I'm not making this up. I thought sales meant twenty percent off. Like <laughs> I didn't <had no> <laughs> know. That is the
2: best definition of sales I've ever
3: heard. I didn't That's know. It was like, oh, I'm. I mean, yeah. So um, I started this in this company, and it was a really uh, interesting company, and they were doing uh, heating and ventilation systems for homes in New Zealand where I lived, and and I had a degree of success really quickly, and I. Uh, after a short period of time, I, I didn't enjoy it at all, actually. Uh, it was really interesting. I, You know, like, I mean, some of it was a little bit door-to-door stuff, and getting chased down the driveway by some guys, Rottweiler is not fun. So so I was like, Lord, I am way better than this. I don't want to do this. And, and um, I really felt like God tell me to be faithful with the small. Uh, and so I stayed in that job. Most people stayed in that job for about sort of six to eight months, and then they would kind of move into a different position, or I mean, just, you know, that that sales format's not easy. I actually stayed in that role for about three years, which was a long, long time for that company. And every year I used to do about a 1,000 sit-down appointments. And so by the end of three years, I'd done 3,000 sit-down appointments, and I learned everything that I needed to learn in that experience. It was kind of amazing how God can use anything for, you know, for the future. So. I am um, during that period of time though I began to kind of realize that there was this inverse relationship between time and money you, you either had one or the other <laughs> <laughs> so true so if you were if you, if you had a bunch of time then then you probably uh, had no money and vice versa and so I I began to ask the lord for an understanding around business and and just would you would you help me understand what you understand would you help me to see what you see and uh and would you give me an idea and so one day i was sitting in a cafe and and i had an idea and uh and i it was kind of interesting i i used to take all my dumb ideas to chris he's a you know push ceo and a really good friend of mine and, and he would laugh at me at all my silly ideas one day i took him this idea and it was Pushpay, and he didn't laugh and so we we said we'll do it together and um and we were it was kind of the the, the basis of the idea was hey you should be able to pay for stuff really easily with your phone in 2011 you know like iphones were relatively new in new zealand at that time no one was doing mobile payments and
2: only four years old in america
3: right yeah i mean you know we just got the internet last tuesday in new zealand
2: (laughs) (laughs) i was there that's not much of an exaggeration
3: it's Uh, a little bit slow four million people 40 million sheep it's a good place (laughs) but um so we we began thinking, but we didn't actually know where we were going to apply the idea, like what would we do with the with this concept? And uh, we both just um kind of arrived at the conclusion, like, hey, uh, you should I mean, generosity was it was interesting. Before we knew what we were going to do, we we actually wrote down our core values for the business. we I, we, we still those core values haven't changed in seven years. We wrote down, what generosity would look like for us individually as men? Um, we wrote that down and and shared it with each other so that we would be accountable to each other. We wrote down all sorts of things about how our organisation would run, even before we kind of had uh, the the sort of direction that we were going to use the idea. In. And and uh, and one day just just felt like, hey, the the first place that we should do this is is making an impact at church and and really. And we kind of thought, like originally, we didn't understand how big an idea that that would be. So we we kind of had, well, hey, maybe there's all these other things we could do with it. But over time, we began to get very, very focused on that and to see that there was a major impact. So we kind of came up with this super audacious goal. We wanted to see a billion dollars given to local churches. And... You know, like the GDP of New Zealand is like $17. So that's not realistic down there. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> so you knew it had to be bigger than, uh, than New
3: Zealand. Oh, yeah, for sure. So we, we were like, hey, well, we're going to sell everything. We have and move to America. Um, and so, we, you know, like sort of 24 years of age and, and Chris is, you know, a handful of years older than me. And and so we did. We, and I'd never been to America before, like literally ever. So, um. <laughs> We, that's what we did. It was kind of, and to kind of give reference for how big a billion dollars is, like, you know, people just throw that number around, but I I was trying to quantify this for a group of people I was speaking to recently. And, and if I was to convert, say dollars to seconds, a million seconds is about 11 days. A billion seconds is about 31 years. So. Which is about as long as you've been alive. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now, <laughs> so we we kind of and so we, we thought right we're gonna go to America and do this and so um we packed up what we had and and sold everything kind of that we we could sell and just got on a plane and pe- it was kind of crazy because people were like why because we started in L A people ask us like why do you start in L A because there was a direct flight from Auckland to L A <laughs> we <laughs> were really right. scientific in our approach and uh and we just got on the ground and started mm-hmm. speaking to people and and saying, hey, we think we can have an impact and, and we think we can help you. And I think not being from here and not, uh, you know, um, being so closely connected, to, it, it gave us an outside perspective. And I think there were things that we didn't know, which I'm glad we didn't know, because we just were able to run fast. And, and maybe sometimes when you know things, you're afraid and, and you don't move. Uh, maybe having a little less knowledge is helpful in some ways. So um, we began to kind of just Really think and 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 we'd uh, we'd put everything we had in. So Chris and I had sold his accounting firm and mortgaged his house, and and I took my life savings and said, let's go. And and so we we, we jumped in and we had raised a million dollars in capital actually, which was kind of uh, just a you know, private like equity, such, like venture. Yeah, a, there was an individual in New Zealand that looked at what we were doing and said, hey, that would be really cool. I would like to be a part of it. And I I still can't believe that he invested in us because we were just so green and so we really didn't know what we were doing and, and I think hindsight is beautiful but we I just look at us now and I think wow um, and I really do think he, he's a very prudent man so I know he was acting more on faith than uh, what he could see which was interesting but we 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 th- that was 2013 when we came over and it was kind of funny because we began to run out of money during the course of the year and who knew software and sales and being in another part of the world was really expensive, but it is. And, uh, there was New Zealand pesos as well. So, you know, a million yeah. New Zealand. <laughs> you know, our, our money doesn't go quite as far, uh, over here. And so we started, um, running out of money and it was, I, I do actually remember this part of the story just being so formative for Chris and I, because during the course of the year, sort of, you know, August rolls around and then September rolls around and October rolls around. And we, we haven't managed to successfully raise any more capital. And we're starting to get really, really concerned. We know we're going to run out of money about December. And uh, for me, I mean, we brought on board a hundred churches. We had some amazing churches. We had like Hillsong and a bunch of others. And it was like, you know, up in New York there. And and I was going to have to call every single one of them and say, Hey, I'm sorry, but you know how uh, you signed up with us. We, we can't actually uh, keep servicing you. And I was so worried about that. And, um, and we were, we were going to run out of money. And I remember November rolls around and we've still got nothing. And then the end of November rolls around and Chris sits our staff down. We've got like maybe 10 people at this point. And he said, Hey, you know, um, next month, we're not going to be able to pay you. And so I want to let you know that you're all released from the startup. If you, don't want to be here, then you know come Christmas time. you need to put you know gifts under the tree for your kids. I mean, this is how it is. And it was incredible. they every single one of our people said, no, we believe in this vision, we want to be a part of it. Um, and so they they committed, which was amazing. I never forget that. And I think Chris is a leader. It's one of those memories that's very much into his mind as well. But a couple of days later, uh, literally last day of November, we get an email from a from a team and they said, hey, we've been looking at what you're doing, we believe in what you're doing, and we want to be involved in what you're doing. And uh, we'd like to invest $600,000 into your organization. And I was just, I I mean, for me, you know, at the time, I don't know what it was, maybe 25, 26, around there, I'd never seen God move like that, just powerfully, bam, you know, show up and provide. And, and so we uh, I, i but kind of what comes next is a little crazy because I sat down with Chris and, And he's just an amazing leader. He's the most incredible guy. And he said, Elliot, I really feel like it's like God is saying it's not that these are the wrong people, but they're not the right people. And I remember saying to him, mate, I hope you know the sound of God's voice because we need the money. (laughs) 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 This is do or die. And so I remember we prayed about it. And I just remember a complete peace about turning these people down. So we did.
2: My goodness, you're on the verge of bankruptcy, and you turned down over half a million dollars.
3: Yeah, and I just, I mean, that's it's just a testament to Chris, and and uh, and you know, he's he just such a faithful guy. But I think, um, you know, we we just felt really peaceful that like, hey, this is what the Lord is saying, so we we did that. And uh, about three days later, a guy walked into our office. And he was there for a really routine meeting. And I remember specifically I was getting ready to wind everything down. And I tell you, this is kind of funny, but I remember what I was wearing. I was wearing T-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops. Like I didn't care. We were done. And I was just getting ready to wind everything down. And he came into our office and very quickly he he expressed um, uh, a really high degree of interest in what we were doing. And he could see – the impact that we were having. Uh, He could see the merit of the business model. uh, And he said, I really wanna be a part of this. And uh, immediately did due diligence on the company within 10 days, wrote a check for a couple of million dollars. And since then, um, Pushbay's gone on to raise with them and that organization over $150 million. Um, And we've used that to build the most incredible team uh, of amazing, amazing world-class leaders and people in tech our entrepreneurs and, and visionaries and engineers to uh, to service the church and to bring to the forefront a level of technology that's previously sort of been reserved for, for Silicon Valley. Why don't we bring that to the church? So we have about 400 on our team and it's just been an exciting ride and we now serve about uh, 7,000 churches across New Zealand, uh, Australia, Canada and America and I talked before about that billion dollar goal. We have grown really considerably. We're now processing uh, over three billion dollars a year at giving, and we've publicly uh, said that hey, we want to we want to be at ten billion dollars a year um, by twenty in twenty twenty, which is which is really exciting. So that's sort of we're
2: three we, x where you are, yeah. and you have eighteen months, two years to do it.
3: Yeah, and we we uh, we intend on doing that. So. That's the a little, I guess the Cliff Notes version of the story, but it's been a it's been an exciting journey, yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, un- unprecedented and uh, and pretty amazing. How did three thousand in person sales interviews prepare you for what was ahead? I'm just curious about the connect the dots there.
3: Yeah, you know, when I that's a really good question. I. I I'm, I guess, and I've learned over time that God uses really unlikely things as a way of preparing you. And sometimes you feel like, you know, it should be textbook and the way that everybody else says that it should happen or says that it should happen. But um, actually, oftentimes he, 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 he's got a different way of achieving his, his outcomes. So I just kind of, uh, when I look back at that, what I learned was how to communicate with people. and that was so pivotal. Chris had the business leadership and he had the vision and he had the expertise. He you know was an expert in international tax. and uh, oftentimes it means you need to spend a ton of time uh, you know, navigating various different um, you know requirements from a law perspective and all sorts of things like that. and that was really his world. And he had a ton of experience from an entrepreneurial background. I didn't have any of that, but what I had was the ability to communicate with people in a one-on-one setting and and make a difference and serve them. And I'd learned through that sales environment, there were really two ways to get a deal. The first one was to, you know, use all these different skills and all that sort of stuff. The other way was just to serve people. Um, and I read a book by a guy called Robert Laidlaw. He was the first person in New Zealand to start, uh, something uh, de- department stores basically, and I know that's been around a long time in the states. But in 1905 in New Zealand, he uh, instituted the first department store. And it, as a side note, he went on to be the most amazingly generous man. He he gave 90% of what he made and kept 10%, which is a pretty cool sort For of lifestyle. Yeah, I love that. And and he he actually um, he was a very interesting man. He he talked about how. And I I can't quote it exactly, but his concept was most people embark on business in order to, you know, to make money. Um, but there are a very small amount of people that embark on that sort of business journey in order to actually serve and meet people's needs. And inevitably, you know, the kind of the financial results take care of themselves when you're service oriented. So when I, I look back at that sales experience, what I learned was if I just helped people, then everything else took care of itself. And so we try to bring that into our culture as much as possible and to be a very service oriented organization. And it's been really exciting.
2: Can you walk us through, because I'm fascinated by, you know, because a lot of people would have looked at that and said, wow, my life's going nowhere. got a job I don't want, doing something nobody wants to do it's hard, uh, you know, your dreams of being a pro cyclist never materialized, of course, having no idea that you would be a co-founder of a company that's currently valued at over a billion dollars, um, you had no idea that, yeah. um, how, how in that moment did you figure out, like, what would a typical, I, I know this is the wrong thing, but a, a sales script, a serve script to be, mm-hmm. so you're knocking on someone's door. How do you actually connect with them, serve them and make
3: a sale? Yeah, I I think it's a really insightful question. I mean, for me, if I just kind of lift that question up a level or two, I think true entrepreneurialism is born at this intersection between empathy and creativity. You cannot, you know, I don't I think it's an like that's where the success happens is because you're trying to understand the other person and the problems that they have rather than forcing them to fit into the paradigm that you want them to. And then you can apply creativity, but it starts with empathy. And I think that really like trying to understand like what, what is the, what is the person facing and put, put yourself in their shoes and try and understand. And maybe what you have is going to solve their issue, but allowing them to come on a journey to actually see that over a period of time is really important. I think empathy is just the basis of of, of entrepreneurial success. And, and then when it meets creativity, something really potent happens. It's really amazing. So, I mean, for us, it was just about trying to understand here at, at Pushpay, like what are the churches that we are working with trying to achieve And for some of them, it's that they wanted to achieve more funding, like, hey, we we have people in our church that are young and they're not connecting with us through our antiquated methods of giving. How do we connect with them? For other people, it was something entirely different. More recently, over the last three or four years, it's been we've noticed churches, especially significant sized churches, are very interested in their risk profile and making sure that their products actually work and different things like that. So so understanding the needs of the people you're serving and then either in our situation, creating products to serve them or, you know, taking it back to your original question, you know, in that environment, I was able to, in that sales environment, able to learn and able to listen and then able to hopefully give a product to somebody that would help them and make a difference in their family. So I, I do think it's empathy based and that's really important. I, I think maybe the other half of your question, which is so, is so important, like, you know, it, it looks really sexy from the outside to say, Oh, you know, Hey, look, that guy's doing this thing and it's really grandiose. Honestly, there's just a principle about being faithful with the small not with the idea of getting more like that's where people I think it's so easy to trip up like I'm going to be faithful to small and then eventually I'm going to have maybe but maybe not like just being satisfied and doing what you have as well as you can right now and then balancing that with maybe the ambition and the fire that you've got inside of your own heart it's a really that's a nuanced dance I don't know that I can answer that exactly
2: I think that's a really important point um you know, I don't drive a fancy car. I have a nice car. It runs every day. It's a, it's a Honda SUV, which is great. Mm-hmm. But I remember when I had a really crappy car. I cared for it like it was brand new and it cost $50,000. Mm-hmm. And the reason was I figured one day I'll have a nicer car. And yeah. I think that is a principle. You know, I started with a church of six. I don't think you'll be a good steward of a church of 600 or 6,000 if you're not a good steward of a church with six. So yeah. I think that's a really important principle. So... You got tens of thousands of leaders listening to this episode. Uh, and they're going, I, I have ideas every day. Like, you know, lots of entrepreneurs, lots of leaders listening. So you had this idea and everybody, you know, it starts with a problem. Like there's no easy way to give to the church and cash and checks are disappearing. And mm-hmm. What about mobile giving? Can you walk us through the sequence that you and Chris went through from going, huh, that's an idea. Like, did you test proof of concept? Did you did you beta test it what made you flip yeah. the switch or was it just like we're gone for broke and you know we started this thing the next day how did how did that work because everybody has ideas every day and i mean you've built yeah. it into, into something huge
3: yeah you know at the risk of sounding like someone who knows everything <laughs> <laughs> i, I don't, don't come across um but let me just share from my own experience and maybe there's some gold in there for someone and maybe um you know yeah so so i just i share this from what we experience, but not as you know hey i have all the answers here i i mean i think and my own experience is that ideas on their own are almost and, and this is a really big statement but almost worthless um predominantly worthless unless they're married with great execution and so that's where i think the really important thing happens we we had this idea honestly on its own i don't think it really had any uh Value, like what were you going to do just with an idea? But when you were able to, you know, think about that idea and 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 maybe just to throw a, a couple of sort of tech buzzwords around for a second, but this is what we we got really focused on: product market fit. So we knew we had a, an idea, so and we we didn't understand enough about the market that we were eventually going to serve. So that was is a very iterative process where we had to get really um you know neck deep in the market and understand who we were trying to serve and so when you begin to understand more and more like i said before your empathy grows and so then you begin to change and iterate your product a lot of people want to go away and create something in isolation and they become incredibly married to the idea and they become incredibly connected to you know what they've built and uh, their identity becomes connected to it, so they're completely unwilling to change. Because if you change the product, you change them, and you can't change, you know, it's, it gets very personal very quickly. We were intent on uh, not falling into that trap and about separating ourselves and putting the needs of the people we were trying to serve first. If you put the needs of the people you're trying to serve first, then what ends up happening is that you are very, very, very willing to change your product um, because that's what they need. Uh, and so uh, there is a kind of a balance there, though, where you're you're still trying to, as an entrepreneur, see things that they're not seeing. Yeah, you know, your customer's always right, but your customer's not always right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's kind of hard to get that that right, that balance. For Chris and I, so that's all the theory at a, at a high level. Um, for us, practically, it just looked like spending time with people and understanding their needs, and then uh, we weren't delegating. That product management uh, of what our product actually did uh, through various different layers, we were working hands on with our engineering team and saying, "This is what they're asking for. This is what we need." And and it was a very raw, real process, and I, I think very unpolished to be frank early on. Mm-hmm. Over time, that's developed a lot now, where that team, they they can talk. You know, I, I literally, it's thousands of hours. Per year of interviews with existing and uh, customers, with customers that said no to us, with customers that um, you know that are already working with us, or that people we haven't yet brought on board, uh, and, and so that we can learn what are we what are we doing and where do we need to improve. So again, it's always empathy based. Um, but I think like for Chris and I, it was just about being very connected to the market. And I use that word. I mean, this might be offensive to some people. Hey, like this is church. This is not a market. I understand we were trying to apply uh, business thinking to have a greater kingdom outcome. And so it was just very easy for us to kind of use that vernacular in order to achieve that. So hopefully it doesn't offend anybody. But that was sort of where we were and the in how we achieved what we achieved.
2: How did you figure out what questions to ask of prospective clients?
3: I don't mean to sound like a... Um, a broken record here, but it, it did it did come back to that that caring piece and the empathy piece, like when you were talking to them. And some some of them were really bold they would just tell you yeah. like, man, they will just slap you around the head with it. Like, your product sucks, man. Like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> and you know, maybe the like, beta's dead, right? It. Or whatever. It, it, it wasn't for them.
3: Yeah. Right. And I think like honestly, there's a there's a there's a ton of um just comes back to I think personal identity and security, like a lot of people are, some people are unwilling to change for two reasons. Number one, they can't, like it's a resource constraint. I understand that. And so they need to do the best with what they have. Other people are unwilling to change because um, they th- they might think they know better. And and we just wanted to be a really uh, market-led organization that still balanced innovation and, and brought to market things that other people uh, weren't thinking about and levels of innovation. And we do that all the time constantly, but, but separately to that, we were trying to bring something to, to the church that historically just hadn't been uh, seen before. And that, that was really developing uh, a product that they were asking for, you know, even as I say that, I think there's been plenty of organizations that, that have had that attitude as well. So I don't want to just make a blanket statement to say that it didn't exist mm-hmm. previously. But I I just mean that was what we found to be successful uh, and to to have the biggest impact here.
2: Were you were you first to market or one of the first to market in this space in terms of digital giving app based giving?
3: So historically, there had been other organizations that were doing online giving, you know, uh, probably 15 plus years ago. And uh, just with I think even, you know, this really speaks to the topic of disruption because yeah. I, I think that there's various different types of disruption that one type of disruption is when you come along and create something that nobody else is thinking about. Um, I mean, what's an example of that? Like, you know, hundred odd years ago, you know, people were selling ice bricks for refrigeration methods right. and then, you know, Fred Wolf invented the, you know, electrical refrigerator, like, everything detonated overnight and uh, and that was that sort of thing when you see it is really radical and exciting then you've got the other type of disruption where somebody looks at a market and says i think i could do that better and so that's iterative and only slightly better but they focus on things like better service and a slightly better product or a lot better product but you know at, at those are at opposite ends of the spectrum like complete disruption where you solve the problem in an entirely new way I mean, airplanes versus, you know, trains, you know, for transport, or refrigeration versus ice bricks versus, uh, you know, iterative, you know, improvements. So, uh, for us, I I think we we were looking at the the churches that we were serving and trying to understand what do they need. And right now, everything is online based. Yet the world is completely gravitating towards mobile. in 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014. Mobile was exploding. Um, I mean, even today, there are more iPhones sold in America than babies born by a factor of 20 to one. Wow. It's nuts. So and yet the church was like, yeah, hey, we're really excited about online. And so there is a place for that. But we just saw that there was this this missing link. And so we we, we were iterating something that was already existing. Uh, and but at that time, nobody had done fast mobile giving at all. Like that was completely radical uh, to the church. Um, and so we were able to say, hey, here's what we have. We think it could make a difference. I remember the first church that we brought on board was in San Diego, and they were called Eastlake Church. Kind of funny story. I got to sit down with them with their CFO. Her name was Laura Randall, and she's awesome. She's still on staff there, and they're a great church, and, and they're about 7,000 people, and their executive pastor, the executive pastor was like, uh, we're doing it. And she was like, hold on a minute. And uh, we like, <laughs> there was our first customer. I can't believe our first customer was 7,000 people. When I think about that, it's just incredible. Um, and uh, anyway, he, I think he, he pulled the Trump card and, and, uh, and said, I'm, we're moving forward. <laughs> and, and they had a great outcome. They had a really cool experience where we were able to help them connect with a whole group of people in the church that weren't yet giving. And it was exciting to watch. I just remember that, experience of of bringing some piece of technology even though it was so it was so it was very raw it was wasn't polished it wasn't perfect at all but a minimum viable product to them and 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 it making a difference it was exciting
2: how did you sense or how did you know and i guess you probably <clears throat> didn't know that this was an area ripe for disruption mm-hmm. like what told you to keep pursuing this like chris obviously said yes when you pitched the idea to him uh, you had some early investors who said, yes, what are the, how did you know it was right for disruption? And then what are some of the markers or conditions that would tell leaders, you know, this field, this field's ready for something new and
0: different.
3: Yeah. I mean, maybe to answer the second half of the question first, I, I personally have observed that when there's a lot of established and stagnant players in the market, um, and you kind of sense a degree of tradition, traditionalism and uh, you know, like it, it just seems to be rolling along. And, and that to me is exciting because when I look at that, I'm like, hey, well, hang on a minute, there's something, like if I could bring a degree of enthusiasm and excitement uh, and pace and speed and innovation, um, something will happen here. And so it's a little bit like I don't know why the analogy comes, but it's a kind of a little bit like a forest fire. Like you just need a spark a little bit kind of like that, where it starts going and um, when the conditions are right. And I'm not sure but you can kind of sense it to a degree and you can kind of feel it and see it. Um, And I think you have to, again, as what I was saying before, not be married to a particular idea. A lot of people do get so, connected to their idea. They're unwilling to actually disconnect from that. But for us, it was feedback-based, so we had to talk to people and ask them. The first thing that we did when we got to America was fly around and say, hey, if we brought this technology to uh, to you, do you think that you guys would, would buy it? I think people felt sorry for us, so they said yes. <laughs> <laughs> But that was, you know, it was seven years ago and we were, we were, you know, this young couple of whippersnappers flying around saying, hey, we're from New Zealand. I know you can't understand us, but we've got this really cool idea. We think it will make a difference in your church. And uh, we got we actually sat down with really significant sized churches at that time. And, and we just didn't understand that they weren't in a place that they would partner with somebody with such little experience. But over time, we got better at what we were doing and we kept people. And then, you know, they've all come on board over the years, which has been really exciting to watch. But it was it was feedback based and it was uh, being a part of the, uh, for lack of a better word, market and being in the trenches with people. I mean, Chris, you know, as a CEO, his time is divided between and a few things. One of the key things that he does is he's on the road with uh, with our customers so frequently. Um, Just this last week, he's with, you know, a handful of our our customers, like with them and with our product people and with our our customer success people on site, listening and learning and bringing that back so he's not disconnected. And I think that that started very early on for us and it continues now, which is so important.
2: That's that's a good principle that I think a lot of pastors and Mm -hmm. other leaders miss. You tend to isolate yourself in an office. You think you know. Because you read some articles, but you haven't actually talked to anybody. Yeah. Why? Flipping back a little bit. Why do you think people said yes to you when you got your first hundred users? Uh, a little bit of like, hey, these guys are crazy. You might as well. But I mean, you know, if you're a church of seven thousand, you got some big players to sign on with you. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're not. They don't roll the dice on yeah. on they just really- anyone or anything. Why do you think people said yes?
3: So, I, I think that it's got to come down to two things. It's either going to be the strength of your execution or the strength of your idea. The idea itself is really important, uh, and you know obviously it needs to be tangible and real, but that can be replicated. So once the idea becomes common, you need to backfill it with world-class execution. So for us, I mean look at mobile payments right now is now common. Yes. So, what we have to do is make sure that our execution is beyond world class. Uh, and so that's just critical. and and I think that we you know you can continue to do things in a really radical manner, which is very exciting and and innovative. and there's always innovation that can you know I think we we ship um, you know new code four or five times a day, you know on our on our platform, um, and you know there's a ton of different things that we do, which is really exciting. but you know, at that time, I think those organizations were saying this idea and what you are doing and what you are making available, like had never been available before. And so they were willing to put up with, you know, just the fact that there were, you know, two or three of us on a team trying to see the world on fire, you know, so to speak. Um, I, I think that's that's some sometimes how it is. I think as well, we were just, we just believed in what we were doing. For me, I, I, um, I could see the connection between the impact that we wanted to have around generosity and where we were. And I was able to explain that really clearly. I I get asked to speak to CEOs and different people like that a little bit now. And one of the things I've observed is sometimes I'll sit with somebody and they're so gifted and they're doing, and and I'll, I'll ask them, what do you do? And they can't tell me what they do. 30 minutes later, I still don't know genuinely what they do. And I, I think that the ability to concisely share your story and the impact that you can have. For us, it was, hey, people should be able to give from their phones in a few seconds. And we want to make generosity easier at your church. Bam. Like it no, was a single yeah. sentence. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, like I, I do feel like even for a pastor or for you know, an executive pastor or a leader or another entrepreneur being able to say, this is what I do and this is how I can help. And be able to share that very quickly cuts through a lot of the barriers. And then people will come back to you and ask for more explanation and more information over time. Um, But being able to be so concise is pivotal.
2: What were some early wins you talked about some early struggles we'll dive into that in a minute but what were what were some early wins for you that you're like whoo we got we got a break here we got some momentum here what were some critical decisions or critical moments
3: for you uh that led to where you are today yeah um i think there's a few things like we we try to break down what our goals were really quickly and kind of get really focused on them. I mean, if you just elevate what we were doing to a very high level quickly, we're in an industry called SaaS, software as a service. So it was basic, it was software, which is a product and service. So initially you lead with the software, we've got this idea, it's radical, you should buy it. And then you follow that with world-class service and and being able to distill down what we were trying to do very quickly to those two things was pivotal we make a great product. It's going to make a difference in your organization and our, our service and the way that we're going to treat you is going to be world-class. So those are, that's sort of what we did. Um, and I think, you know, that simplification was really, really, really important. Um, I kind of, I think, like I talked before about story, but being able to simplify what you're trying to do, and so that people can communicate that, has never been more important than it is today. The world is so noisy. All the time, I'm getting emails on my phone, and people just, you know, swipe left, archive, swipe left, archive. I mean, it's just, I, how many times you've not even opened it, and so you've got this, you know, people's attention is this really precious commodity being able to sort of break through very quickly and be concise is a demonstration of respect towards people. And so for Chris and I, that was probably the biggest win that we had early on as we, we, we became adept and capable uh, of sharing the impact that we could have in a very short period of time.
1: Um,
2: I want to get to scale. Scale is really, really difficult. This has been a rocket ride uh you know, the, the stat in business and it's the same in church world. 85% of churches never break 200, something like, I don't know, three or 4% single digit break a thousand, you know, and, and then very quickly you're to the top 1%. Similarly in business, the vast majority of businesses never break the million dollar in sales, Mark, uh, Mm. even fewer break 10 and a very tiny percentage break a hundred million in sales. Mm. Um, you've done all that and you've done it in seven years by the grace of God. So mm-hmm. what have been some good decisions and what have been some of the challenges in scaling <laughs> that massively? Cause that's a rare story in any, in any sphere, in any sphere, parachurch world, corporate yeah. world. That's a tough story.
3: It is. I, I think the first thing I would say to any, you know, church leader or parachurch leader or, or business leader, like, you know, you can hear what I'm saying and, apply some of those things to your world irrespective of if you're in business or church or there's got to be something good for you to chew on i hope in terms of the lessons we learned um i think that the first thing that i I would say was uh probably a couple of things maybe two, two things that jumped to mind the first one is around communication, you think that you're saying the same thing over and over and over again and that you're making people bored of that thing. You're not, they haven't heard you yet and you have to keep repeating yourself. One of the things that we did in 2011 was we wrote our values and they over seven years have hardly changed at all. Um, And so we, we wrote them down that they were simplicity, generosity, excellence, innovation, and people come first. And we talk about them and celebrate them all the time and you think like hey i've talked about this 50 times this year but that's okay um that's who we are i think that that leads into the second thing is in terms of scale you have to have people that fit your culture and one of the things that i see right now is culture is a buzzword and what it's become synonymous with is just a cool place to work where everybody likes each other That's not what culture is. Culture is a definition of how you act and specifically culture is not a definition of how you don't act because that list is too long. Culture is a definition of how you do act and I, I think that we were able to define that, celebrate it and champion it early on so that we were able to attract the people who had similar philosophies to us and we were able to repel the people that didn't have similar philosophies to us. If you're not um, expelling people out of your culture, you probably don't have a culture. Mm. You've got a group of people. And it's really important as a leader to say, no, I value my mission. And it doesn't mean that you're insulated and you refuse to see the world in other ways. It just means that, hey, this is how we have chosen to be. And although we might love this person and respect this person, they may not be right for our culture. So where we got this wrong was we used to hire, we, we still do this, but we hire people based on three three Cs. It was uh, character, culture, and competency. We didn't come up with that. Other bright people came up with that, but we thought it was pretty cool. Um, the character part was kind of table stakes. Like if you had to have integrity to be at the table, mm-hmm. you know, like if you didn't, then you're just not gonna be a good fit. So that was just really important. but What we initially did was we hired people based on their competency and all of the stuff on their resume before we hired them on their culture. And that's a recipe for disaster because you cannot teach culture. So what we began to do was flip that around and we began to identify people within our organization that had the characteristics and the culture that we wanted. And although they might not have the actual competency we were after, we could Bring people alongside of them. So we began to invest significant amounts of resource into bringing experts from outside to uh, come along alongside uh, people where Chris and I were deficient. So maybe it was a sales leader or a VP of people or a or a engineer, whatever it is, you know, like engineering leaders and stuff that had incredible culture, understood our market, but maybe lacked slightly. And I think as a you know, in terms of um, competency. And bringing external people that could bring the deficit skill, upskill the person. That was more financially viable, which was amazing. But also, then you retained what was most important, which was your culture. I think for a church leader, elevate the people that carry what you, your culture, and and come alongside of them where they're deficient. If they are teachable, they can learn anything. That's been my experience. My first hire was a, a gentleman called Matt and he was 24 years of age. He was a youth leader and over a period of years, he has gone and been elevated through our organization. He is now our VP of sales and he's responsible for a hundred million dollars a year in production. And uh, he has a hundred staff working for him. He's 27, eight years of age now and uh, he's just the most extraordinary young man. And he had, culture and everything that he liked and still got made up for by bringing other people alongside of him. That for us was just an absolute recipe for success and was very effective.
2: How did you know he had it? Uh,
3: it was his work ethic. It was his fire. It was his, um, uh, his passion for when he saw something wrong. Like I love that when you see somebody and they, they can see this is wrong. And I'm not, I'm not talking about saying um, it, it would how would that manifest it maybe if something was being shipped out the door you know a piece of marketing collateral and he's like no that sucks that's not going out would bring it back That's not going out until we fix it like that level of passion that was just so important people that had that attention to detail was just so critical he had an extraordinary passion for the market and at the very core what we valued was generosity. And I saw that in his life in the most remarkable, extreme ways. And so I, I knew he could learn anything else. Like the guy had leadership, he had these various different things, um, but you know, as a result, he was able to upskill in the areas he was deficient in and just do a great job. And again, the, I mean, like, you know, he he could walk into any job he ever wanted to in the world now, but he didn't have a cookie cutter resume. Um, I think one of the things about an entrepreneur is a little bit like when you see a market that other people are not looking at it the same way you look at it. I think you do the same with people. You see abilities and giftings and skills in them that no one else sees and you call it out in them and you develop it in in them and you'll see them bring something really special to the table.
2: Without um, saying too much you know, I want to be respectful of Matt, but can you give us an example of an area that you had to train him in just to make it really tangible? I think those qualities and characteristics are are fantastic, but like, what would be an example of a trainable skill that he or someone like him would need that you think, Oh, that's an easy patch. That's an easy training. We can do it just, just so that people are clear.
3: That's a hard question to answer. I'm trying to think of something off the top of my head. I mean, everything's contextual for the market that you're serving. Sure, sure. But yeah. Maybe it's, um, you know, like we, we made sure that he had other leaders around them that had experience leading 10 people, 20 people, 50 people, 200 people, right. you know, and, and just because they had done it before. Because at the end of the day, like what is, you know, a 26 or 27 or 28 year old guy is not equipped to deal with that level of you know uh, personnel oftentimes i mean you know the, the kind of running joke that i've heard before is you have hr problems if you have more than one person <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and i any, had them when
2: it was just me but yeah, yeah i i get, I get <laughs> it's who you not
3: mean just you. and and so like um, teaching them how to uh, you know how to Uh, deal with those issues. And I mean, one of the things about Chris, the company CEO, he's just a prolific, prolific reader. Uh, And so he would consume information enough to get the ball rolling. And then we would bring people from outside to help patch the areas of knowledge that we didn't have and the areas that we were weaker in. And, And that's been across the organization. So everything from product to marketing to sales to customer service to bringing people from and we we love bringing people from outside of the church into that you know we've been working with people that are board members and you know chief marketing officers and and um, head of products and stuff like that for the most well-known companies in the world and asking them to come and bring their level of expertise like uh, you know from organizations like slack and salesforce which are multi 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 multi-billion dollar organizations that saying hey we serve this market. You've probably not thought anything about this market, but teach us what you know and we will apply it. And that has been incredibly rewarding uh, to bring people from outside the market and ask them to come and look at things with fresh eyes. Really cool.
2: What have been some of the biggest challenges for you personally over these last seven
3: years as, as you've gone mm-hmm. on this journey? Gosh, that's a that's an interesting, interesting question. Um, you know, I think that you know, when you are on the battleground and you're, you're taking ground and you're, you know, you're moving forward and all those things. And I, I realize I'm kind of, <laughs> for some reason, using military terms, but the, the point is that sometimes you get really fatigued. And so, you know, there can be those times or those seasons where you just want to step out. Um, maybe you want to finish up and, and maybe that is the right decision to make. Um, but oftentimes just being really structured around your rest and uh, and and making sure that you are not burning the candle at both ends inappropriately is just, a, is just really important. And there are times when you will need to put in extraordinary hours and you will need to work harder than you thought humanly possible. And there are other times where you need to have your feet up. Um, I think in life, you're always trading various different currencies. You're either trading in time, emotion or money. And you can exchange one for the other pretty much uh, anytime you like. Um, So you know, if you are finding that you're giving a lot of time, then probably your you know then your your bank balance might be going up, but your emotional currency might be going down, and all of those things are interchangeable. My, My point is that just knowing where you are, you know, is and where you sit with all of those different things, and and the you know your you know your your reserves in each one of those areas is really important and so it's something i've tried to pay attention to over time i don't think you get it right all the time but uh, you know if you're aware of it at least you can move forward
2: what are some of the personal rhythms habits and disciplines that that have kept you alive and sane and even knowing hey it's time to take some time off or now's the mm-hmm. time to drop the hammer and get it done what are what are what are some things that have kept you Alive over these
3: last seven years. Yeah, I think maybe the first thing I would say about that is probably for so many people listening, they've got people they're in partnership with. You know, you're a senior pastor, you've got, you know, you've got, um, you've got a spouse that you're working closely with as you lead a church. You've got an executive pastor that you're leaning on, or maybe you're a business leader and you've got a co-founder like I did, or, or you know, 101 other scenarios. I think what I've learned is to prioritize unity over outcome? And for Chris and I, you know he he uh, we had a really cool relationship. he's he's my co-founder, but also my boss, you know the CEO of the company. And so working alongside of him has just been the most rewarding thing. He's an amazing leader. But how did we like when we prioritized unity, our organization grew. And when we uh, did not prioritize unity, everything suffered. Um, Which was really interesting to watch and just understanding that it took us a a couple of years to understand that but over the last four or five years really uh, Beginning to understand like communication for the sake of unity allowed us to move forward Um, And at the end of the day, there are some things that Chris would say no We are going to do this and so it's up to me to say right the decision has been made let's move forward and how am I going to back this decision and we're going to run fast and Oftentimes, uh, you know, that unity when you prioritize it is just, it breathes so much life into the organization and everybody else around you will benefit from it. You know, when mum and dad are happy, the kids are too sort of thing. That's been my experience. The other thing I would say is that always, always separating your decision from emotion as much as possible, at least anyway. Like a lot of people are fast to make decisions based on emotion and the more significant the decision, the more emotionally it can be based. And and I think, you know, you talked before about rest, um, that as well is just so critical that, you know, you separate you separate uh, things, whether it be rest or season changes from, you know, emotional decisions. I mean, for me right now, uh, you know, I just just recently made the decision to to conclude my time at Pushpay. And so um, you know, that's, that's a decision that you arrive at over a long period of time, you know, with a lot of prayer and a lot of thought, but, you know, instead of making that type of decision in a sort of a, a, a moment of emotion, uh, which is generally going to lead to a whole lot of pain, um, you know, being able to separate that. And I think that that's so applicable for wherever you are in leadership at church or as a businessman, um, but being able to make decisions in a really clean isolated fashion is super important. That's been very, very helpful for me.
2: Mm. Um, you're going to take a break. That's yeah, what's next take- for you. Just take a little yeah. break. Got a couple <laughs> of kids.
3: I do have a couple of kids. I'm really excited about that. And, and it's been, so it's been seven years since starting and just know that it's the right time to, uh, to take a rest and to, you know, uh, you know, to spend time with my children and, and, uh, you know, we run really fast. The organization's going to go on to do some really amazing things. Um, and, and Chris and the team are, are poised to do some amazing stuff. And it's going to be amazing that the company's uh, in, in a brilliant place. But uh, for me right now, I'm going to uh, step out and conclude my time at Push fame. We're, we're really excited about, about what comes next. I think what does come next is going to be a, a, a period of rest. And who knows what's after that
2: covered a lot of ground over the last, uh, hour or so. So when you think about the marketplace or the church leaders who are listening, what would you say are say two or three keys that they should keep in mind as they launch something new or retool what they're doing based on your experience of push pay?
3: Yeah, I, I would say, um, understanding, uh, where the tools they're looking at fit into their overarching wider strategy. Just attaching um, sort of ancillary tools is, is generally unhelpful. But when you uh, can look at the leader at where you are today and where you're going, making sure that whatever decisions you're making, especially from a technology perspective, fit into your overall strategy. So if you you know have a young organization that you are trying to lead and you know technology is a key part of that, then making sure that technology fits that uh, group of people you're trying to serve or if you know you're a business leader and you're retooling from an operations perspective um, you know I've, I've seen this we've made this mistake before where you just you know bolt on a tool that kind of solves a short-term problem but ends up causing long-term pain so I, I would just say that uh, zooming out for a moment and understanding where what you, are uh, doing from a technology perspective uh, fits in. I I, I have seen uh, sort of two types of church leaders. The first one is that delegates the the technological decisions down to a really administrative level and then miss out on so many of the great wins that they could have had from an actual tactical and strategic like overall level. Um, and then the other type of uh, leader is saying, hey, like what I said before, where does this connect with our overall strategy. And that's what we're trying to do at Pushbay. So, hey, how can we connect with an actual leader to uh, to maybe surface a conversation that they're typically delegating and, and and bring this up to a higher level? That's been very fruitful for the churches that we serve and and for us as well.
2: Elliot, this has been great. Where can people learn more about Pushbay and maybe about you?
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess you can follow me on Instagram if you like. Um, and in terms of Pushbay, you can just go to pushbay.com and uh, there's a whole ton there, which should, which should be a uh, good reading about us and what we do and how we can serve. And Kerry, it's just been a real uh, honor to, to spend a little bit of time with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I've really, really enjoyed it.
2: You've helped a lot of leaders today. It's been a joy to meet you. Look forward to hanging out in August and
3: Elliot, all the best for the future too. Thank you. God bless, mate. Thank you.
1: Man, sometimes that was the first time I had met Elliot and sometimes you just like instantly like somebody. That's how I felt about Elliot and uh, I'm looking forward to hanging out with him in August in Charlotte and that's for the Push Pace Summit. We hope you will join us there. Links are in the show notes. I just, I think probably the most memorable part for me is not how the company grew. It's just that he was in this job he didn't really want to be in and decided to do the very best he could with that. That just speaks of integrity. And you know what? It's that biblical principle. If you're faithful with a little, maybe I can trust you with more. I really think that's how God thinks. And it's just great to see this story. Um, you can get everything in the show notes, carrynewhoff.com slash episode 205. And remember, if you're training your volunteers, don't do it the way that most people do, which is completely ineffective, which is try to get people in a room. Go to trainedup.church and use the coupon code CARRY and you can do all your training online. Train your volunteers on their phones, get 100% trained, use the coupon code CARRY on checkout, get 10% off for life. And then next week, we're back with a fresh episode. We got a couple coming up here that are really fascinating. Les McEwen is here. Bobby Grunwald is coming up on the podcast. Dana Spinola, who actually is an entrepreneur with a powerful story, uh, plus, we have Max Lucato, Brady Shearer, Andy Stanley, Nancy Duarte, Patrick Lencioni, Levi Lusco, Rachel Cruz, Daniel Pink, so much more this fall. If you haven't subscribed, can you do so? It's free, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts or wherever. And here's an excerpt from a fascinating conversation I had with Les McEwen, his second time on the podcast. First time, one of the most downloaded episodes of all time in those six million. He's one of the top ones and Les next week talks about the differences between visionaries, operators, and processors, and how each style of leadership is necessary in thriving organizations. Give it a listen.
0: And then, oh wait, I've got something to do here. I've got to turn into operator mode, and I've got to do that. But while you're doing the operator side, the visionary bit isn't happening. So you're not evangelizing, you're not preaching, you're not building the size of the church. Oh, got, oh, I've got to go find uh, out. I've got to do the operator stuff. Let's go find a little garage I can lease. Where can I get some music equipment? You do all that. But while you're doing all of that, you're not doing the basement stuff. So you start going V, O, V, O in a cycle, in a circle. And you're not getting bigger. You've got to get to the point, and listeners, I'm pointing with two fingers on a parallel course here, where you you're, you're can V and O at the same time, not switching between the two. And I, and I I'm used to, I don't work in the... Um, early struggle startup stage anymore, but when I did, I worked with a lot of highly frustrated, really competent people who were bogged down because they were really good at being a visionary and really good at being an operator. So it took them a lot longer to realize I've got to choose one, which is typically the visionary style, and go find an external operator.
1: So again, subscribers, that comes automatically into your inbox, uh, and that will show up next Tuesday if you subscribe automatically. And thanks so much for listening, guys. Thanks again for 6 million downloads. Thanks for being the most awesome tribe in the world. And if this episode helped you, would you tell somebody? In fact, here's what I'd love for you to do, and we'll help you with this next week. I'd love you to think of some business leaders that maybe go to your church or live next door to you that you think could, could benefit from this and just share the link with them. Because, I mean, Elliot's story is a powerful story. Les McEwen's episode next week kind of describes every business anybody's ever been in before or church or organization. And I just would love to help get the word out. And you guys can do that better than anybody. So if this helped you, share the link with somebody that you think would really benefit from it, even if they're not in full-time ministry, if they're in business, I think that would be great. Thanks so much for listening. We are back next Tuesday with a fresh episode, and I hope our time together today helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast.
0: Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.